Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. Welcome, everybody, to our episode eight. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. Before we get started, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who sent in messages for our special episode on March 30th, which we'll devote to questions from you, our listeners. It's not too late to get your questions in, so feel free to send us an email or voice message to audiences at coc.ca. You can find some instructions for how to send us a voice message at coc.ca slash keychange. And we really can't wait to hear from you. We're really excited to hear all your questions. Now, on to the episode. Last time, we spoke with musicologist Rena Rusin about opera's role in activism. For this episode, we're speaking with Daniel Bartholomew Poyser about the many areas of his work as both a conductor and a disruptor. Daniel is currently artist-in-residence and community ambassador at Symphony Nova Scotia and the Toronto Symphony Orchestra's principal education conductor and community ambassador. You might have seen the documentary Disruptor Conductor, which highlights his efforts to extend the boundaries of orchestral music through concerts for neurodiverse, prison, and other marginalized populations. He's passionate about community engagement, and we had a really interesting chat. We found many connections between his work and what we explored with Rena in terms of opera as a force for change. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about how Rena shared with us that originally she was studying political science, and then she happened across music history and musicology, and that became her passion and her way of exerting influence in the world and creating social change. And I'm really excited, Daniel, as a working artist, as a conductor out there in communities, I'm really excited to hear how he uses that as his avenue. So we'll get into all of that as well. Here we go. Daniel, such a treat to have you here with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Daniel, starting off, if you could share with us your journey to becoming a conductor. How did you find your way into this life you lead now? My journey to conducting started at Marion Carson Elementary School in grade two with Leonore Pauls, my grade two music teacher, uh, who taught us conducting patterns. She just taught us, she taught us a two pattern, taught us a four pattern. Okay, okay. Let that simmer. Two years, grade four, Mrs. Kostyanuk, shout outs, Mrs. Kostyanuk. And I just remember her, I just remember her saying, you know, I can't do her accent, but I, uh, I can, you know, remember the story of her saying, you know, after a hard day's work, I just like to go home and listen to some Chopin. and listen to Chopin, but that planted a seed that, oh, this is something you can do. This is, I listened to Chopin this morning. Uh, awesome. <laughs> uh, that planted the seed, you know, then when I was in grade six, I, um, I had to decide which school I was going to go to for, for grade seven. A band came from the junior high school and they played for us. And I think it was probably the first time I'd encountered live music in that way. And I just remember the feeling of watching, they played Superman with John Williams. 
Thank you, John. Thank you, Sir John <laughs> Williams, for you know inspiring me. Uh, this crazy group of probably grade nine kids played Superman for this kid who'd never heard anything like that before, and I was hooked. But that was how really it wasn't a conducting journey; it was a musical journey, a journey, um, a journey in music that started with education. And why do I say that? Why do I harp on that? It's because it was about access. I wouldn't be here if I didn't have the access. I wouldn't be here if when I wanted to play tuba in high school, uh, there wasn't a tuba there waiting for me, uh, coming from, a, at that point, a single parent family, uh, really affordable rate. I had access. I was allowed to take my tuba on the bus to practice at school. Um, had a really great school music program. So if this sounds like, you know, oh, he's just advertising for music education, it's because he is. It's Absolutely. He is. Yeah. yeah, that's how I got started. Too. If it weren't yeah. accessible, I never would have gotten into music either. Absolutely. So um, I'm cognizantly aware and I constantly like to do very bold, not even bold, but overt advertisements for the power of music education and the difference that it made in my life. You know, not every... Uh, you know, not every kid can, you know, play first clarinet or be, you know, principal second violin. And for them, there's football and baseball. There's other things for those people. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, music is very, is very important. So it was that access. Now, to being a conductor specifically, right, I knew that I wanted to be a conductor probably at age 13. I remember doing a presentation for my French teacher, uh, Madame Wilson, who was small but fiery. Good heavens, I remember her well. And um, I did a project on Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique, L'Idée Fixe. And then at the end of the, at the end of that little, I did some conducting for the class. You know, people rolled their eyes, and you know, who's rolling their eyes now? <laughs> Just maybe the orchestra occasionally, but we hope. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I did I did music education. I taught for ten years. I taught for ten years, but I always had this struggle inside of me of do I do professional music or do I do educational music? Because I was like, I ha- you know, I wanted to have an quote unquote impact, you know, um, showing young people the power of music the way that I had experienced it. Yet, I also wanted to work at a high level, quote unquote, high level uh, with professional musicians. So while I was teaching, I was almost always doing some sort of professional group 20% of the time. And then at a certain point, I had a, uh, a conversation with my friend Rod Squantz, who's now the head of the music department at the University of Calgary. He said, you know, Dan, you're getting to age where you kind of have to decide. And I started doing auditions. And I did for a number of university uh, professorships, uh, or PhD programs, I should say. But I got the job with Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra. And a little bit of a story with that. Um, (laughs) You know, teaching is really, really intense. And uh, it's, you know, you don't you don't have time to think during the day at all. And that can go on for months and months. And I remember the band concert was scheduled for a Wednesday night. And my audition was a Thursday morning in Thunder Bay. And I realized that if I didn't change the date of the band concert, which is a huge thing to do, I would never be able to get out. So I had to kind of rock that boat, move the band concert forward a day, got to the airport at six o'clock for my 8 p.m. flight to Toronto, but it was snowing. Oh no. Of course it was. Of course it was. 
snowing. Flight was three hours delayed. Missed my flight into Thunder Bay. Ended up sleeping on the ground at Pearson. Got two hours of sleep. Got into Thunder Bay about 90 minutes before the audition started. Rolled into the actual audition 10 minutes late because of flights and stuff like that. And won the audition. Uh, we missed some very, very stiff uh, stiff competition. And, uh, and and I say that because they know who they are and they're now also in conducting posts in Canada. So Adam Johnson was there and now he's in Montreal. Go, Adam. Uh, he's doing he's doing wonderful things out there. So, uh, But it was a great thing that happened because on two hours of sleep, I was able to successfully complete an audition. And that gave me so much confidence for everything that came before. And then after that, it was uh, Kitchener Waterloo Symphony, working with Olga Machailuk, artistic administrator, and uh, Edwin Outwater, who's my mentor and one of my very, very close friends. And then uh, Halifax Symphony, Nova Scotia, working there and now Toronto uh, and guest conducting. I was with, and I was uh, with Washington National Opera this past season, which is wonderful, and San Francisco Symphony for the past six seasons now. Um, and then, you know, I had canceled engagements with Baltimore, canceled engagement with Detroit because of Corona, but those are all coming back next year. And, uh, and a Carnegie debut next, uh, next, next spring. Very exciting. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can we loop back momentarily to Washington national opera? And because we'd love to know about your experience with opera, both personally, like as an audience member, as a, as a music lover, and then professionally in terms of the, um, blue, the project you worked on in Washington. Right. So musically, um, I grew up going to a lot, you know, the standard, the standard musicals, right. And Broadway musicals grew up with that. And that was probably the entryway. And then I remember not seeing as much opera growing up and even in my music career, um, just like specific moments. One of which was, uh, Miss Puccini's Tosca, which I vividly recall just being blown, blown away by, uh, when I saw it as a youth in Calgary. then in my training, right, a lot of it has been, um, you do a lot of opera excerpts as a, as a, you know, orchestral conductor, you're constantly doing overtures, all the big Rossini overtures, the the big Italian opera overtures all the time, and some French as well, too. Um, And the Washington National Opera is, to date, my biggest involvement with opera. You know, we're always doing opera scenes. You seen here, we did um, in Kitchener, we did Flatermouse, which was wonderful. So being the cover conductor, assistant conductor for that. Uh, but the Washington National Opera experience, that's been sort of the Hochpunkt. Uh, that's been the real highlight, one of my career highlights, um, being chosen to be the cover conductor for that. So that opera, the opera Blue by Janine Tesori and uh, Libretto by Tazewell Thompson, 
than knowing that I was going to be a black member of uh, all black cast in an opera that was about a black police officer whose son is shot by another police officer. So directly addressing race issues musically in Washington, D.C., the year before a presidential election, I knew it was going to be a very, very intense time. I knew it was going to be uh, a time of deep, thoughtful reflection. And I was not disappointed. We'd get into a rehearsal and we'd finish a scene, for example, where, um, you know, not even the scene where the mom is coming to grips with the death of the son, but just a scene where, for example, the son is talking to the father at the end of act one, and he's talking to the father about all the injustices uh, that black people have had to suffer. And not even just black people, just in terms of class. And you get through that scene and musically, because of what Tesori has done, it's so compelling and it's so powerful that you, you need a break emotionally and physically. And I don't know what happened, but I, I, we must have gotten through the end of one of them. And one of the cast members came to me and he just said, just, he said, Dan, just spend some time with it and let it sink in and let it do its thing to you. Don't fight it. That's what he said. Don't fight it. So this was an opera and it was at once more than an opera. You know, Kenneth Kellogg is the, uh, he sings the role of the father in that opera and he's the bass. It's impossible for Kenneth to sing that role and have his son die, um, Aaron Crouch, his his stage son died without thinking about his actual son, right? And we know that gun violence is still uh, very, very real. And we know, I mean, we, we know this is still happening, right? So it was an opera and it was also a personal journey. Thinking about um, my roots, my forebears, uh, Tiswell Thompson's libretto is, it's beautiful, it's stunning, and it really, really gets you. To be honest, it ended so abruptly because of because of COVID that we, we didn't have a chance. The only other person I've really talked about this were some members of the cast and and um, and John Demain, who I talk with you know every couple of weeks still, you know. But this is one of the main times I've been able to talk about. This is the first time I've been able to really talk about my experience with that opera. We're so honored because we in Canada have not experienced this work yet. So it was done at Glimmerglass and then heading to Washington National Opera and sort of cut short of its life because of COVID. And we just feel so honored that you're sharing with us about your experiences and about that work because we as we have yet to receive it. So yeah. it's so beautiful to receive this insight. You know, it's it was I, I was so excited about um you know, and you have to frame things. People will look at me and look at my career and go, oh, conductor, and then project everything they think of, you know, you know, conductors, mutis, abudaki, onto me and all these things. Great, that's fine. But I'm, you know, I'm a prairie boy. <laughs> and I started with 10 years of junior high school teaching, teaching kids at 7 a.m. to put together clarinets, right? That was the first 10 years. So then you take that person and say, you're going to Washington National Opera next year. That was tremendous for me. It was huge. And it was opera on a scale that I'd never really, uh, you know, the Kennedy Center. This was, oh, I was so excited. So I went to Glimmerglass for the premiere for the very first performance because I wanted the musicians that I was going to be working with at Washington National Opera to know that I was there and that I was committed to the performance. And I was there for the very, very first one. So I was there for the first one. But we, so we worked on this incredible, incredible opera in an incredible setting, being able to walk around Washington, D.C., 
taking in everything, just like drinking in Washington as much as I could, because I knew this would be a special time. Uh, walking around the Capitol, walking the DC, Mon- the, the Lincoln Monument, um, walking on the grounds. Um, a couple of days before I left, um, the the blossoms came out, the rose blossoms, the cherry blossoms, not rose blossoms, oh, the cherry lovely. blossoms came out. So I got to see all of that and just soaked in Washington. So now I see what's happened on the Capitol building. It impacts you very, very, very deeply. For my colleagues at Washington National Opera, my colleagues at the Kennedy Center, my friends in Washington, the beauty of that place um, being desecrated in that way, it's very, very painful. And this, um, you know, there's a couple things that happen. First of all, I haven't spoken much about the music. The music is compelling, the music is tremendous. And the way that Tesori is able to match. Um, oh boy, it just it goes down so smooth. But the way that she's able to match the emotion and um, and pace emotion with text, just just the pacing of the whole thing, is incredibly impactful. And it's music that really, really lives. It lives inside of you in a very different way. Um, it's almost a series of tableaus. Right, different scenes, starting with um, starting with the father who encounters this police squad, and he goes from wearing, I guess, what you could say, just like casual street attire, to putting on the police uniform, and then you see the mom come in, and she's talking to all of her girlfriends, and they're having fun, and they're making food, and she's talking about her business and all this, and then she says, "Oh, I'm having a boy child. You're having a what? You're having a who?" No, 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 no. You can't have a boy because we know what happens to black boys. We know what happens. And then that's where it starts. Is already the child hasn't even been born yet and there's a sense of danger. And Tazori takes us through all of that. To um one of the most impactful scenes is when um is when the mom, you know, is finally coming to grips with the fact that the child is dead. And the interval that she sings is a minor ninth. And you have to hear it. It's just it's this the setting, you know, it's amazing what we do with music, you know, intervals, it's just notes, but in the right setting, it's just so much more. It's just so much more. So the point is that all of this, uh, you know, we're getting ready for this and we're feeling emotions and we're aware of what's happening socially. We're aware of what's happening politically and we're putting this together and we're feeling it in our real lives and we're feeling it on stage and we go through all the processes and then we get to COVID. Things were happening faster in Canada. All my friends are like, Dan, are you going to come back? Are you going to come back? Uh, no, I'm not coming back. I'm with the Washington National Opera and I'm going to stay for as long as I possibly can. I have a friend who's a, a data scientist in uh, in Manhattan and he said, uh, oh yeah, you know, he's like, yeah, it's just exponential, Dan. We're, we're going to be at 4,000 cases by this date. Wow. So I'm uh, I'm sitting with John DeMaine at the old Ebbett Grill and we're two days before opening night and the dress rehearsal is the next day. And we're sitting there in the afternoon. We had a rehearsal that morning and we're just sitting there refreshing, refreshing our email, refreshing Gmail, refreshing Gmail. Thanks for the salad. Refresh Gmail, order another drink, refresh. And he said, it's a laugh a minute. We're just watching across the industry. Meetings are being had. We're just waiting for it. And then I went home that afternoon. And then I got the text from Johnny's like, we're canceled. Mm-hmm. So that felt, um, you know, we, we'd gone through it and I'd conducted a lot of it in like the majority of it in rehearsals. John was doing the dress rehearsals. And then this entire process is just halted. And 
it's the halting of an opera, but it's also the halting of a message that needs to be um, that needs to be stated. You know, because we're talking about we're talking at that point in March about police violence on black people. We still had not reached May 25th, the best new opera by the Music Critics Association addressing police violence on people of color. Then we go into lockdown and then we know um, what happens after that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you happen to know Daniel in terms of, I know it's so hard to predict what's going to happen, but I'm going to throw things over to Robin in just a moment, but is there anything on the horizon in terms of when this piece might return to the stage and when we might hope to encounter it? Because like you said, the urgency and the importance of that message has not needed. Right. right. So um, online, we did a virtual offering of one of the scenes, a bunch of, we got together as a cast and we presented that. But in terms of mounting the entire production again, as far as I, I believe that there was whole to be production uh, this summer, but I don't know if it's going ahead yet, but that's just right. me. We can check that and maybe you can put the information for people. On yeah. We'll make sure we link online. it, give them something um, in the show notes so they can dig into yeah. the production. Yeah. But it will, it will have a life because. Absolutely. Um, the, the whole notion of, it, it started off, uh, Tazewell Thompson spoke about it, saying that it started off with a, as a Black family having a son who was shot by a police officer. But then as they went through refinement and as they went through um, the process of coming up with a libretto, um, he decided that actually it should be a police officer who loses his son mm. to, um, to, to Black on no, sorry, to, to police violence against Black people. And that just adds another layer yeah. of tension yeah. uh, within the production. And that adds another layer of tension within <laughs> Kenneth Kellogg, who has to sing it. And also me, I have two, I have two cousins who are NYPD. Mm. I have two cousins who are NYPD. Um, and I have, you know, one of my very close friends in Calgary is a police officer. I have two friends in Kitchener-Waterloo who are police officers as well, too. They could come to this production and that's what I, that's one of the things I loved about it I wish that my cousins were able to see it um because I know that what the father in blue feels is what they feel as well too even though they're police officers their sons are not immune to that sort of violence right right um and what I think is that is the achievement is that presciently uh Tesori and Thompson have created something that both expressed the moment and unfortunately foreshadowed um, exorbitantly what we were to experience in the next month. As such, it is and will remain um, a stunning artifact of our time. And I'm glad that that artifact is preserved in as multifaceted, um, as multifaceted, uh, a medium as opera. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it might be even more profound performed after George Floyd and all the horrors that did take place. Um, Because a lot of opera goers are not people of color. Mm -hmm. And so they likely might not have had any emotional connection to that. Um, to the realities of living in North America as a person of color, as a man of color mm-hmm. and the risks that are faced. And all of a sudden the, the whole world was exposed to things that mm-hmm. they were much more conceptual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and if that might like now might be able to really understand the urgency of it in a way that they couldn't before. Right. And what is, what is very special about this, this opera at, at the premiere, there's a woman sitting beside me who is not a woman of color. And she turned to me and she said, what I love about this is that it's not just about race. It's also about uh, just, it's just also about just family and love and people. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I was, on the one hand, I was mad. On the other hand, it's also true, right? So let's talk about the mad part first. But I, part of me was like, how can you sit through this and have the first thing that you say be that this is accessible to everybody because we all have this experience, right? Um, but she is, but she's also right. Because, and she didn't, you know, she, it was the moment after everybody's applauding. She was, she was excited. We we're all excited. So that's not, that, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Um, but what I think she latched onto was the fact that any mother watching this is going to come away with an appreciation and a love for their child and that you can relate to that. You can relate to the father. Uh, you can relate to um, the son who's full of something in vinegar. Uh, he's played by Aaron Crouch so wonderfully and is, and is an activist, but then ends up uh, getting into deep trouble. And then I think everybody will be able to relate to, uh, to the mom. For example, um, I don't want to give too much away, but there's one scene where the father and the son have had a fight and the mom played by Brianna Hunter, so beautifully by Brianna Hunter, is um, she she brings peace to the family table. And the way that she does it is just all moms will recognize it, right? Mm. So the, here, here's the thing. It's a story about a family, right? And then another layer, it's a story about a Black family. Uh, another layer. It's another. It's a story about a black family that's involved um, in law enforcement, and then also black in law enforcement and police violence. And but but all, it's but it's it's also this beautiful beautiful opera that I just listen to. I just listen to it because I just love it. Mm. Right. I just love it. Mm. So um, the music. What was very then maybe you know as a final thing about it. The, one of the things that was most difficult about the entire thing is that when you are um, a performer, Alexander Micklethwaite, who was for a long time the music director of Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, said that all through the process of preparing and getting ready for um, a concert, you are sick. And then by the concert, you are healed, right? Mm. You have this music living inside of you. You know every every moment, everything that's going to happen, how you want every phrase. And then in the concert, you get to express that. And there's a, in the same way that, you know, we take a left step, we take a right step, you breathe in, you breathe out. This process with WNO was a big inhalation and then hold your breath. Right. And it still kind of feels like that. (laughs) Right. It's living in you because you haven't had the chance of that exhalation and that expression. Wow. I I listen to it with the score and I still, I still enjoy it. So I have been able to exhale, um, you know, Mm. in the weeks of quarantine and lockdown. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, that actually is a really nice tie-in to the thing I'm really curious about. Um, Talking about opera and pertinent stories and personal stories, how do you physically prepare for something like that? Being a conductor is physically demanding. You're standing up in front of people for hours, keeping everything going moving your body in such a highly coordinated fashion. And 
there's a difference between performing the canon and performing something that is really deeply personal mm-hmm. to you. Is Was there any ways that you approached it that was different or was it, did you approach it in the same way? So in terms of the, the physical approach, um, conducting has to be from the inside out. So it'd be really easy for a conductor to get up and do uh, a Furt Wengler impression, right? But the reason that, you know, uh, Furt Wengler or Carlos Kleiber, the, there's always a reason for the way a person moves the way that they move. And if you don't have that reason underneath, then it's just very empty and orchestras will pick up on that because there's no intent. So the first thing to do is to have a really good idea of what it should sound like. And that's based on the score. So that's the same, I think, um, well, roughly the same across opera and, um, and, and just concert. You know, uh, for example, for Blue, what should it sound like? Well, when Janine Cesori is sitting beside you and Tiswell Thompson standing right there and both of the creators are in the room and you're working with them, you get a really good idea of, oh, when she want, when she puts bells there, this is what she wants. Oh, it's not just a scratch. She wants like a sheen of sound. That gives you insight into not just that work, but a lot of the composer's work. Okay, fine. So now you have an idea of what it should sound like. What I'm learning, because I'm still a young conductor in terms of how long I've been doing it, and also hopefully just plain old young, um, you want to have an imagination of what it could sound like, right? So I know what it should sound like. What could this sound like? And that's the difference between, you know, you hear one recording, it's good. And the next one is like, oh, that is sharp and crisp, and I'm really feeling something. And then the next recording where you listen or performance, you listen to it, and it's just like you're transported. Okay, so what it should sound like, what it could sound like. Then the question, and to answer your question specifically, physically, I need to think of like, okay, if I know what it should sound like, and I have some cool ideas that I think, you know, the orchestra will buy and the singers will buy about what it could sound like, what do I need to do physically to encourage that? And that's where I get, so that's where it's the mental process of what do I need to move? Like, do I just need to be really clear and small here and let the orchestra and the singers organize themselves around me? Or do I need to be more forceful and really act this out to inspire them? And that is always a balance. That's always a negotiated dance uh, between leading and, uh, and, and between leading and saying, go here and do this and more fire and more this and just guiding what they are doing because you're always having a conversation with another group of, of professionals that have um, a very concise idea about what the music should go like. And sometimes you want to guide that in a certain direction. Sometimes you encourage what they as a group, both the singers and the orchestra themselves are already doing. Physically, you're doing some stretches, right? I will conduct silently um, for myself. So no, you know, I'll have the score out in front of me and you know, sometimes I'll play piano and stuff as well too, but I will be conducting silently. And I feel when there's a disconnect between my internal intention and my hands. That's a moment where the music is weak inside of me. I go back, study it, sing it, play it, think about it, walking down the street, going down to Raba's or whatever, grab some, you know, salad, milk, what have you, going over it in my head. Uh, go for another walk somewhere else, thinking about how I want this. So, and, and I'm not trying to sound like, you know, like the, like a, like, like the nutty professor or anything like that, but I will be walking down the street and probably there are times where my hands are moving a little bit. I'm thinking, right? Conducting training, this is a really interesting thing. Uh, I studied a little bit, well, a lot actually with uh, with Kenneth Kiesler, who's a professor at the University of Michigan. Uh, and his 
a well-renowned conducting con teacher at uh, Madama Conducting Retreat. And what we would do is I would be sitting, um, actually say me and another friend would be sitting on a, on a bed in one of the cabins with our scores out. Our other friend would get up and conduct in front of us, right? Silently, right? And what's amazing about this is you can hear the other person's interpretation based on what they're physically doing. And also if they make a mistake, like you, you have to imagine three people in a room, one is conducting, two are looking at a book, looking up at that person. And then suddenly all three just start laughing. And then you're like, oh, right, I missed the second violin. Right? So it's a lot of internal work. Um, it's a lot of thinking and careful physicalization, thinking about what is the relationship of my motion to the sound? What do the musicians need to see from me in order to feel secure and safe to do their best, uh, to not be distracted? And how do I make, every, it's, it's, it's a lot like being an airline pilot. You just want everybody to get home safe, right? Yeah. And when you have a huge production, you've had, you have two dress rehearsals, the orchestra's seen the music for three days beforehand, the singers, you are making sure that everybody is getting the information that they need to do their best job. That's your job. That's beautiful. And I imagine you, like you described, you're, phys you're internalizing these muscle memories, these motor patterns so deeply that once you get there, it doesn't matter what you're confronted with. You can you physically, you just keep going. It has to not matter. Yeah, it has to not matter what you're confronted with because I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about being a cover conductor. So I was being the cover for, uh, for John Domaine. And he is one of the, you know, he's probably the world's foremost porgy and best conductor. Uh, his recordings with the, Houston, uh, with the Houston Grand Opera are of great renown. So I was there um, to be the cover conductor, but also just to really learn from John. And I had all of his markings, all of his beat patterns in so that if anything, you know, God forbid should happen or he had to leave suddenly for whatever reason, um, I would look to the orchestra as much like John Domain as possible in terms of beat patterns, right? So it'd be a seamless transition and they can still do their job. So if he were unable for some reason uh, not to be able to do the job, I can step in and it's seamless. So that's, that, that, that's a big part of the job there. So it sounds like basically when you're cover conducting that you're not only dealing with your own physicality, but then you're learning the conductor's physicality so you're ready to slip right in there yes and so how do you negotiate that like right so how do you go about it the the what how you go about it is thinking about why you're doing that job and the reason you're doing that job is to make sure that in case of emergency the orchestra and the cast are able to perform musically and well to the best of their ability so what do they need to see from me if they have had, you know, 17 rehearsals, right? Where these four bars were in a four, four pattern. And now you come in, Mr. Cover Conductor, and you're like, you know what? I've always felt that this should be in two. And suddenly you do it in two. That one moment of indecision can be enough to throw somebody off. And when you have a singer who's trying to scoot across stage, right? To, to keep the door from slamming, because if the door slams, then that, mean, the, that means the other person on the other side is going to be locked out or whatever. They don't need that. 
What they need is consistency, reliability, and uh, solidity. Am I making up tons of words this podcast? I don't know. Okay, good. <laughs> what they need is consistency, reliability from you, right? And they need to see that. So what's important, it's about developing trust um, as a cover conductor, even in the rehearsals, that when it, when it was my turn to conduct, then, you know, you know John will leave and then, and now I'm conducting, that I'm not throwing curveballs. You don't want to throw curveballs. Right, because you want to have every everybody's mental attention needs to be devoted to the art, right? And you don't want to have them like having a reserve mental capacity, thinking, "Oh, what what what's the conductor going to do?" Right? But the thing is, once you are in that framework of safety, now you can create. Yeah. Now you can express things. Now you can say, "Okay, now let's have okay more for it." You know, I'd like a little more for it. Now you can insert a little bit of individuality, but only once you've done the actual job first. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. The thing is, it's not either or; it's a balance, right? And of course, if I were to, if I were uh, to have conducted, it would be slightly different, you know. But um, my goal is, especially go, especially you know, my position there is to make sure that um, that people are able to perform and able to enjoy performance. The audience loves it um, in case of emergency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Daniel, we're we're such admirers of your commitment to community engagement, and we'd love to have you speak a little bit about that and the way you're helping to break down those barriers that have existed between classical music and um, and marginalized communities, people who haven't felt included. Uh, so could you tell us about how that first manifested in you and how it's taking shape in your work presently? I think the way that it first manifested is probably due to the fact that growing up, I would listen to all different sorts of music in, in different contexts. So, you know, visiting my family in Brooklyn, and I'd be hearing Handel's Messiah, you know, and then walk down Flatbush and then come back home and something else, you know, Vivaldi, whatever's on, right? So the, the mixing of those contexts for me, I don't, I'm not doing anything that's different from anything in my regular life, right? So bringing, um, you know, taking our music to, I don't want to say bringing, because the difference between bringing and taking is very different, right? Bringing is like, we are offering you the Beethoven. Our, isn't this wonderful what we're giving you? Wow, no. No, unless with the hand that's offering the other hand, you know, you're going to take that hand back and, and receive the mighty sparrow from Trinidad, right? Or, you know, anyways. Um, so taking music to different communities, I think a lot of it is about access. Um, there are people who would love to hear our music, but just are unable to, just because somebody is part of, you know, you know, parents who have kids who are on the spectrum, for example, they have so much to think about uh, just getting their kids to, just getting their kids to a concert, how much work that takes. It's the least that we can do, not because we're offering them anything special, but because of what they're doing that's actually special. Let's let's give them some Beethoven. Let's give them some Puccini. It's really great music, and it can help them as they're doing their important work. You know, um, communities who have you know, they're like orchestral music is all is all over the place. So it's, it's more about just recognizing that fact, um, recognizing. There are other musics that have a wonderful tradition. Uh, I think Beethoven is really, really special and really, really important. And I think his story and his music, what he did with harmony, what he did with rhythm, uh, well, not not rhythm, what he did with like uh, motivic development, I think it's really, really important. And Brahms as well too. It's my poverty that I cannot speak to the same sorts of figures in Korean music or Indian music or the music of Brazil. That Brazil, <laughs> that's right. my that's my loss. Yeah. Um, so when people are talking about um, orchestral music, and I think what, what's frustrating people is that we haven't made space necessarily for our, or, or haven't recognized um, the beauty and the value in other music as much. So it's about recognizing that. 
I am, you know, I was raised on Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, and it will always be that way for me. Um, that I love, I, I love that stuff. I love that music. I love that music. I love Mozart. I love Haydn. I love, I love Tesori, and I, I love Glass, and I love Berio, and I love the second Viennese school, right? And I also love Calypso, and I also love, um, I also love reggae, and I also love Sufjan Stevens, and, and I love orchestra, and, and I, love, I love teaching, you know, grade sevens as well, too. And I, and I love high school students and, and working with them and seeing lights come on, you know, you know. So for me, maybe it's just a stubborn refusal to, <laughs> to do one thing. Um, but really, but really it, it is doing one thing. It's trying to do music at, uh, to the absolute best of my ability and breaking down any barriers to anybody who wants to enjoy it. In the the documentary Disruptor Conductor, which people can stream on CBC Jam, available, available now, <laughs> uh, but it's great. Do check it out. But there's something that you said that's really stayed with me. It's that anyone who feels other needs to be included. Yeah, and also the moment of inviting those um, those female inmates at the prison to conduct and giving them the yes. opportunity to have that agency and that sense of control. Yes. So beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Thank you for that work. Okay. But thank you. That was the whole point. That was the entire point of that concert. This is a concert um, at Grand Grand Valley Women's Institution in, uh, in Kitchener. And the whole point of that concert was to allow these women who are the inmates of that institution to feel like they were in charge of the experience and they had the power. So we come in as, we're going to play Beethoven 5, and by the end, they were rehearsing the quartet. They were conducting the quartet. There was even a moment that they didn't show where um, in order for them to effectively rehearse, the orchestra has to not know the piece. So I got the orchestra, I got the quartet's permission, put a very relatively easy hide-in menuet that the the quartet had never seen before into manila envelopes, handed it out, Got the orchestra, got the quartet, sorry, to sight read it. And then I had them play it. And I had the women actually say, no, do it faster. No, we want more viola. And it was all about, so thank you for, it was all about subverting the power and letting them have that moment. That was the whole point of that. And just another quick thing on the documentary, there's the Thorgy Thor concert, right? Yes. And um, Thorgy Thor is a, a star from RuPaul's Drag Race. And one of the things I remember when we did that concert with Symphony Nova Scotia, which is a pioneer orchestra in terms of taking risks on this sort of stuff. Um, when Thorgy Thor came out on stage, it is the loudest I've ever heard an orchestral audience um, cheer and yell. Such that in all of the, I think, six or seven subsequent performances, I've had to warn orchestras, for the first piece, you have your earplugs in. Why do they scream so loud? Because for the first time you have people, usually most of the audience is under the age of 35, that are seeing a space that has traditionally been fairly conservative, um, where now they are allowed to be who they are in that space, right? That's inclusion. Bring yourself to work, bringing yourself to that space. And that's the power of that concert. Yes, it's great music. And yes, it's Thorgy Thor, who's an incredible star, drag queen's work like nothing else. But what it's about is having an audience of people who felt that they were on the outside of an institution being able to say, hey, I can be here as well too. And while they're here, oh, you know, I actually kind of like this music as well too. That's what it's about. And that's why the screams and the cheers were so loud. It's a, it's a cathartic moment. And that's what we can do at that moment. And that's what happens with, for example, Blue. 
You know, there's a reason why I can look at that opera and say, wow, this is an opera about a black police officer whose son is killed by another black police officer. And I wish my cousins who are NYPD would be able to come and see this because they would love it because they will recognize themselves in the blackness of the characters on stage. And any black person who goes to see that opera will recognize themselves on stage. There are things that they will know from our culture from the inside out that they will recognize on stage. And that is a beautiful thing. That's not only diversity, having the black faces on the stage, that's also inclusion in terms of the way the opera is done, the way that it is uh, that it portrays us in an authentic and a real way from the inside out. Well, I'm so honored that Daniel spent that time with us. So inspiring. He's so passionate, both like in his work and talking about his work. So really grateful that he spent that time with us. Yeah, it was so exciting to talk to him. He's just, he's an effervescent human being. Absolutely. What were some of the standouts for you in terms of what he shared with us about his experiences, which are so vast? He's done all sorts of different work in different communities. Um, Let's start with Blue. I feel like we kind of need to go through them step by step because there is so much to talk about. When he was talking about speaking with an audience member who wasn't a person of color, who had just heard Blue, and she had said that she totally understands. I'm paraphrasing inaccurately, but I think that kind of gets it across, that she she understood the experience. And he was very like, no, no, you don't get it. And how, just the timing of Blue for her to be mm. able to get that when when and people of color have known about police brutality and violence within the police for, for decades. Mm-hmm. But it's something that people who aren't of color don't engage with necessarily. So it's easily not seen. What Rena shared about the seven last words of the unarmed is that these stories, these texts and stories are now being interwoven into these musical forms of storytelling where those stories haven't necessarily been present. So there's this interesting coming together of communities who have who have known for a very long time that this is happening. This has been such a, a deep part of their reality. And it's encountering this other group of people, these other communities who have a very different lived experience, who've had a much more privileged lived experience in many ways. Yeah. And that opera can be used to, to share these stories in a way that is a lot safer because you are somewhat detached where you're watching what's happening on a stage rather than arguing at a town hall or clanking away on your computer. Like that there is that level of detachment to allow for conversation and understanding in a very different way. I'm so excited to know what the future life of Blue is going to be beyond beyond the times that we're living through, given that it was so short of its opening night and then thinking maybe when it returns, not only will it return to that original production that was meant to happen, hopefully, but that it will be seen in many cities and many communities across North America and potentially internationally as well. It's really exciting. Yeah. Like people getting to see stories that they're unfamiliar with and people getting to see stories that they're all too familiar with represented together on stage is just it's a thrilling idea of like that sharing i love that robin it's like what happens when a story is told simultaneously to a group of people who are half of them are familiar 
and the other half are completely unfamiliar and have never encountered it before. What's that, that magic that happens in that moment or the power of that encounter? Hmm. Very cool. Hopefully we'll, we'll have more of that once this pandemic has calmed down. And I, I feel that that leads really nicely into his work with disruptor conductor, the documentary. Yeah, everything that's documented there is so cool. They did uh, just a big shout out to the makers of the documentary mm-hmm. and encouragement to our listeners to check it out because they showcase Daniel working in these different communities. And it's really lovely to see the breadth of his practice there. And uh, what really st- struck me was his work in the prison system mm-hmm. with these female inmates. I found that very powerful. Um, me too. Yeah, because like a lot of prisoners are victims themselves and don't have agency by virtue of the fact that they're in prison that takes away agency but the circumstance that led them to have no agency was beginning with a lack of agency in having been victimized so to have this platform where conducting is giving a form of agency it's saying let's work together and you can react to my voice yeah, or hands. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking about that, that young person who never had an opportunity to, to s- offer something, whether it's through words or through a physical action and to have that responded to positively, they've never had the experience of being able to change their circumstances, be able to impact their surroundings. And so, but then they become an adult who's never had that experience. Right. And so to imagine what that feels to be handed that baton and say, you're going to stand in front of this group of people and they're going to follow your every gesture, whatever your vision is for this moment, they're going to help you realize it. They're going to make it a reality. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, I'm going to cite sort of what's popular in the culture right now around, you know, just fake it till you make it. And, you know, oh, it's all within you. You have to believe it in yourself. But if you've never, if you can't imagine what that is, how can you fake it till you make it? How can you believe that, believe it in yourself if you don't know what it is? Right. So have a safe avenue to be given some agency to learn that, oh, people can be on my side. I can be on other people's side. There is some level of safety. Mm-hmm. is incredibly profound. Yeah. And the physical nature of it as well. So when we think about conducting, I know there's these scientific studies that have been done where there's a feedback loop between like our emotions and how we feel and like the physical positioning of our bodies mm-hmm. with the hypothesis being, or I think it's been proven that if I stand in like a power pose for two minutes, something's going to happen hormonally and chemically in my body that makes me feel good. And likewise, if someone wins a race, victory, they, you know, they do that. I get curious about like the biochemistry of this person having the opportunity to conduct and like move their arms and take that space. And perhaps that's a physical positioning they've never had. They've never had the experience of previously. Yeah. Well, and that's like how we move really does reflect how we are. And I'm not saying this to plug myself because I am gradually stepping out of massage therapy, but that has been my day job for many mm. years. You can, When people are depressed, they physically, they shrink in when they they might be fine but something's causing them to physically shrink in they will become depressed Mm. Um, anxiety Mm -hmm. has a totally different texture and sometimes just moving your body 
differently is a way to break those, those, we talk about muscle memory, but right. it's really, it's not a memory so much as it's a motor pattern. Yeah. And um, now I'm thinking about how Daniel had that experience as a young man. So um, early in his young music education, he, someone said, Hey, I think you might like conducting. Here's a baton. Come stand in front of the class. Come stand in front of the group. And uh, how that set him off on a whole journey. So especially when when people are young or vulnerable for any reason, mm -hmm. to give them that experience of having that agency, having that control and that um, joyful power over right. circumstance and artistic expression. Could you imagine being like 13 years old and your music teacher saying, give it a try? Oh, amazing. Also, I think about conducting, like I've never conducted, but you kind of have to forget yourself in a way because your mm -hmm. your job is to empower and inspire this, this whole group that's in front of you to do their best work, to yes. come together and succeed together. It's a weird balancing act because you have to fully be in control of yourself and fully surrender to being part mm -hmm. of this, this entity that is an orchestra. Yeah. So here's a question, Robin. If you could get up there with that baton in your hand, let's say we could snap our fingers and have all that skill and training that would it would take for us to conduct a, a full orchestra, what would you want to conduct? What would you want to exert that agency oh, over? So many things. So many things. But I think I'd start, it's ambitious, with Dare Rosen Cavalier. Aim high. I love it. Why How not? about you? Uh, for me, it would be Zalome. Mm. I think that it's it's really muscular and powerful music and you know that female character Taya Kasahara mentioned this in episode mm -hmm. three but that female character and the journey that she goes on it's it's wild and it's powerful and it's carnal and it's exciting so I think wielding the baton uh, that crazy timpani so you know timpani at the end I think it'd be really fun really really fun. Robin, I'm reminded of what you encouraged us to think about when we spoke to Rena about the celebratory aspects mm. of the activism and the social commentary, because we do get caught up with the tragedies and the victimhood. And it's important to mark the tragedies and be aware of this, the great suffering that's going on in the world. But um, you reminded us to be celebratory too, and to point to the joy. Right. It's, I mean, these, these cultures, we say like it's different, like they're different from ours, but we're all humans and we all celebrate. And we need to be celebrating the really wonderful things because it's so easy to get caught up in like, oh, why, why do people really want to honor their Indigenous heritage or their Black heritage when it's all just suffering? But it's not. And there's so much pride in our cultures. And it's an antidote to a lot of the horrible things out there is that pride and is that celebration. Mm -hmm. And humor too, mm -hmm. like humor and love and joy and that it's all part of it. And um, again, like that's what Daniel brought into our experience chatting with him, I think. That oh, energy. yeah. <laughs> and talking about Thor G. Thor and the Thorchestra, like that yeah. is disruption, yeah. you know? Well, and nothing's as disarming as joy when you least expect it. Exactly. And I just, I would have loved to have been there to see. And I believe you said it happened in Nova Scotia, which yes. is just the, just um, tickles me completely because I remember growing up in Halifax when, you know, there queer people 
I had a friend who came to school one day with black eyes because he was gay. So to have that moment of that joy and that pride and Thorgy coming out in her fabulous outfit and with her violin is, oh, it just makes me feel so warm inside. We're curious about your experiences with opera as activism. What do you want to see more of? What's exciting? Let us know on social media or send us an email. And remember, we'd love it if you'd send us your questions for our special episode on March 30th, where we answer all your burning questions about opera. So send those our way by March 5th uh, to be included. And if you'd like some more details, you can visit coc.ca slash keychange. If you're a COC subscriber or member, you have access to exclusive bonus content and extended interviews. Daniel has some really great Desert Island Disc recommendations for you, so you'll want to watch for that link in your supporter newsletter. Next time, we'll be speaking with acclaimed actor, choreographer, and director Michael Greyeyes about his career and connection to opera. You won't want to miss it. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time. Bye.